two birds yarning. Hello. Oh, hello, Michelle. How are you? Well, you can see I am in the robe. Dishevelled. Dishevelled. Brush has not been put through the hair. That's how it is today. It's one of those days. Never mind. It's post New Year. We've had to go back into life full throttle, haven't we? We have. Like it never happened. <laughs> like like Christmas and New Year never happened. It does feel like it was months ago, but anyway. Yeah. Anywho. Michelle, today I was I was browsing through Facebook and, you know, this gorgeous picture of us came up as a memory. This time last year, I posted something on my personal Facebook page saying, don't forget, Michelle and Geordie have a podcast. You must sign up and review and rate and tell your friends, la la la. And we had quite a few current listeners who weren't at the time. This is 54 days ago, 54 weeks ago, sorry, <laughs> 52 weeks ago, who are now listeners. Now, one of them was Jez, right? And do you remember we took his classic one-line review of us and now use it as a hashtag, hashtag two birds yakking, if you want to follow our exploits on Instagram. But unfortunately, I looked at that and it's not what he said, Michelle. What did he say? Two birds yarning. Yarning? I thought it was yakking. (laughs) So did I. (laughs) And one of us said... We should use that as our elevator pitch. Oh, I see. So two birds yarning. Two birds yarning. Well, there you go. We we took it. We ran with it. We changed it. Who knows? We changed it. Sorry, Jez. Yes, yeah, sorry. But thank you for listening and sticking with us. Well, do you know if what? If indeed he has, we we've got we've got to thank someone else for we do for sticking with us and listening and sending us an email. We love it when you're writing. We do indeed. And look, I gave a shout out to Natty J before. But or Natalie, as she's actually called. Well, that's what I just realised. She's not Natty J. <laughs> I, I mean, she is Natty J, but that's her nickname. <laughs> so so we're go. that familiar. We're, we're now good friends with Natty J. So we can call her that because we're in her ears weekly by the sound of it. I know. And what was most exciting about her last email was she said she has stories for us. She's got stories. I can't wait. We're waiting. We're waiting, Natty J. I know. Come on, <laughs> Natalie. Come on, send them in, please. Because we'd love to highlight your story. You can be anonymous. You're not right now, but that's okay. (laughs) So she is in the United States. Our reach is far and wide. Two birds yakking worldwide. I hope she can understand our crazy accents and some of the Australianisms and the UKisms that we might use. I wonder if that's... I wonder if we're hard to comprehend sometimes. I wonder because often I refer back to a, a previous episode, assuming you've all listened, but... Maybe you haven't. So, you know, but speaking of previous episodes, you know, we got our 50th episode wrong. (laughs) Yes, that's because we're bad at maths, Michelle. It's true. We we celebrated our 50th episode on our 50th episode of the second season, but we'd already done 12 or 13 before that. So So that's not 100. That would be like 72 or something. So I think we need to get it right for our 100th. What do you okay. think? We'll do a big yes, let's go back and celebration. <laughs> let's go back and count how many episodes we've actually done. Yes. And do a centenary episode. Now, we also got a lot 
of comments on our catfish faces, our filter faces. Oh, the filters did freak people out. That's on social media, guys. So if you're only listening to this podcast and don't follow us on social media, you'll be missing a whole load of great content on our Facebook page, which is eavesdropping podcast.com oh no that's the website eavesdropping podcast is the facebook sorry yes yeah and And then there's also the instagram which is eavesdropping underscore never a g it's always a no g situation here with eavesdropping (laughs) that's that is correct so what do people say oh people said you look hot as a man as a man you're a beckham look-alike uh-huh. Nobody Blue steel. Oh, actually nobody except Neil the scientist con- commented on me as a man because I had half yeah. a melty face. Melty in face. It. Yeah. yeah. What did Mrs. Hannah Huggers say? She said something about you as a man and I can't remember what me? it was now, but she did yes. Oh. She did say something. She also said that something about the glam pictures and I pulled up the one that you're not keen on and I and I laughed and I said, "Oh, she doesn't like this one." And she said, "Oh, I thought that was the glamorous one." With the the bubble perm, neck. the soccer mums. <laughs> With the snow. That was so bad. horrific. For both of us, Michelle, though, for both. You know, we've got to be able to laugh at ourselves. That's the name of the game here. But that was the thing. When you sent that through, I did think that that was me in an alternative life. That could have if been me. If you'd never left Canberra, if you'd married your childhood high sweetheart. school boyfriend yes. yeah exactly you lived in the suburbs and you had 2.4 kids and maybe a, a gerbil would you have a gerbil or would you have a would you have a dog or a cat or a gerbil I have all of them I would have, have a menagerie I would have a menagerie and you wouldn't have time to put on lipstick would you because you'd be so busy running the kids from practice here and practice there and yes would you be high achieving <laughs> Look at my life now. Me neck and champagne on the social media pictures for New Year's. That's that's how it Hasn't went. Done, no bu- you haven't done too badly. No, no bubble perm in sight. Although, full <laughs> confession, I did have one of those in school. And I think Didn't I even all? had that horrible bob. Yeah, so did I. It was horrendous. Yeah. But yes. But I think, why? I think it was too close to we the We both bone. have natural curls. Why would each of us have a perm? It's madness, isn't it? It is. And I actually think it destroyed fundamentally my hair follicles I think <laughs> forevermore because Jen got a home perm it wasn't even like at the hairdresser it was a yeah, home same perm. with my mum yeah who knows Good what times. those chemicals were putting those skinny little rods in your hair oh, for a nice God. tight curl Jen had Hollywood blonde hair dye she still does she's always putting it through through the old uh, grey roots sorry Jen and oh. uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jen. What? With one hand, she gives you glamour. With the other, she takes it away. I've done that. Sorry, Jen. But she would grab my brother, just put put a bit of Hollywood blonde in his hair. He was all of eight years old or something. <laughs> he looked look like neighbours. <laughs> oh, so wow. I bet he had all the girls chasing after him. Bless yeah, him. I don't know about Listen, that. I had something funny happen. Well, it was something disturbing stroke funny. So I have a little shout out. A shout out okay. for a listener's husband. Oh, okay. Now, this husband, I don't think he listens. His name's James and he's the husband of my friend and neighbour. And he is also my friend and neighbour. Laura, hello, Laura, you get a shout out. He rang me the other day and usually it's, he's ringing me because there's some sort of emergency. He not, might need to 
maybe he's got I've got the spare key or I need to pick their kids up or he's got to drop a kid at mine for some reason whatever you know no that's what neighbors do they look after each other <laughs> neighbors <laughs> he rang me I'm almost home from a day at work decluttering and I got the phone call a little small panic because usually it's her that calls so if he's calling something's gone wrong and he said how are you I said I'm fine how are you he said I'm good actually I'm not that good and I'll tell you why So I started to freak out, thinking, God, who's died? He doesn't know this. And then he said, I just saw a dog identical to Winter crossing our road with a woman with long blonde hair. And at this point, the minute he said that, I'm thinking, who the fuck has my dog? Someone's kidnapped my dog. Dog nap. I'm freaking out. Yeah. Freaking out, thinking, I need to get off this bus now and run. Just run through the streets screeching. So he doesn't know that's my reaction. So I'm panicking. He said this woman had long blonde hair and a green coat. He was in his car about to take off to the supermarket, he had his window down. He belted out the biggest laddish wolf whistle he could possibly muster. <laughs> and when she turned around and she's only meters from him, he realized it wasn't me and said, oh, sorry. And then drove off. <laughs> He was beside himself with embarrassment. Unbeknownst to him, I'm getting off the bus at this point. My knees had almost given way because I was hyperventilating so much. I wanted to get to the end of the story to find out if my dog was all right. But actually, it was just him making a tit of himself. And I was so relieved. Oh, my God. But we have talked about this before. You have a doppelganger who now has stolen not only your identity, but your dog. I know. What? Because there's no dog that looks like mine unless it's the same breed. And there's not many people with silken windhounds around here. No. So what is going on? Somebody is stealing your identity. Next thing you know, they're going to have a podcast. They better bloody not. Who knows? They better not. I won't have it. Well, James, if you're listening, you just got to be prepared. If you call, you better have bad news. Otherwise, she's actually not bad news. (laughs) Because my knees will always be already be giving way. Yes. Do you know what else about this suburb, Michelle? You had your very first celebrity spot, didn't you? You were spotted outside a train station in the local area by an eavesdropper, weren't you? I was. I was. And I didn't realise that me looking, you know, with a frown face crossing the road in the cold, somebody is watching. They recognised me. You were recognised, and that was by one of our listeners who I know. She has a little dog called Baxter. It's Karen. Shout out, Karen. Shout out, Karen. Shout out. Shout out. Shout out. You're getting a shout out. My shout outs for the day. So, one last thing before we get into the episode. Yes. Hang on. I was going to say two words, but it's not. It's three words. Toast of Tinseltown. Toast of Tinseltown. I started it last night. It's fantastic. Do you know what, Michelle? What? In the second episode, when he arrives in Tinseltown, and I don't believe he is in Tinseltown, I believe he's in London, because all of the big US stars who are making cameos are all on camera, and none of them are in situ. And the only American people he's got is Fred Fred Armisen and... Rashida Jones. Uh, Rashida Jones. And I think they are probably in London shooting on a set. But he sees Jim Morrison. Yes. Does that Jim Morrison look familiar to you? Who is it? Do you remember Killian's little friend, Chris? Yes. Oh, my God. I reckon it's him. No. It was. I just said, that is Chris. Oh, my God. We haven't seen him for years. (gasps) It really could be. Did you look in the credits? Yes. I did, but I, I, well, I didn't look in the credits. I looked on IMDb and I couldn't find it because the credits were too fast. Oh, my God. Well, do you know what? I've skipped ahead. I've, I haven't finished it, but I'm almost at the end. 
And there's one where he's doing his like Western. He's he's in a Western. And Don't tell me what happens. I'm only halfway through. No, but there is an ex-boyfriend of our friend Lisa, Benny Wong. He's in it. So, and I've met Is that ben- her ex-boyfriend? Yes, yes. Is he? I know Benny Wong. I don't know him. Well, I've met him a few but times. But I'd like to get but... to know him. Yeah, no, he He was... seems like a nice man. He was a nice I've seen him man. in loads of things. Yeah, I know. He's, he's, he's doing great stuff now. He's in, uh, in Toast of Tinseltown. I have to say- Oh, fab. I don't love this series as much as his earlier series. It for yeah. me, it's it's lost a little bit of the charm, and Clem Fandango. Oh, I live for Clem. I love you, Clem. I love Fandango. Clem, but I think Clem had a bit too much Christmas pudding recently. No, he's just grown older. Is that what it is? Oh, he's yes, just gone, he's, he's a, grown up now. Because it used to be that he was so skinny. He's still beautiful. Oh, he looks a bit different. He's very busy in Hollywood. Is he? Shazad Latif. I can't remember his – that's it, Latif. Anyway, I, I still love Toast, or Sandwich, as they called him. But I, I love <laughs> Toast, and yeah, have a, have a watch. My, my new favourite name from Toast is Belinda Bojangles. Oh, Belinda Bojangles. <laughs> Just does everything so it's well. Excellent. I love him. I absolutely love him. And I actually love, love him. And you I know, know you this. do. You know. Anyway, yeah. that's moving on from Matt Berry. Matt Berry, she would give you the time of day. That's for sure. <laughs> for sure. What are we talking about today, Michelle? You tell me. You tell me, honey bond. Well, do you not know what we're talking about? Well, let's hope you did your research because we were talking about, we, we loved that program, Yellow Jackets. You keep telling me about this actress who, since you mentioned her, I've seen her loads now, Melanie Linsky. She starred with... What's her name? Uh, Kate Winslet in Heavenly Creatures, indeed. And that is about that's about killing a parent. And I also watched something this week about killing parents that I wanted to talk about. So the theme today is how to kill your parents. (laughs) We're not giving you a manual. We're just giving you some stories. Don't worry, Jen. No, you don't worry. Don't worry. Yeah, you're okay, Jen. For now. Um, so, <laughs> no, you're right. We were talking about <laughs> Melanie Linsky, who I actually think is maybe a bit of a Ben Mendelsohn. Thought she had no career after he- Heavenly Creatures. Turns out she's done loads of things. But anyway. She's been busy. And yes, uh, Heavenly Creatures was the film that launched Kate Winslet. 1994. She was 17 when it started filming. 19 years old when it came out. Wow. And somehow she was unknown. She'd literally done nothing else. She was cast in this film from a a pretty much unknown New Zealand director called Peter Jackson, who previously had only done schlock horror. We talked about Bad Bad Taste taste before, but also Meet the Feebles. And that was her film debut, Heavenly Creatures. And I wanted to mention that the idea for this film came from Peter Jackson's partner at the time, Fran Walsh, because I think it's always good to big up women who maybe don't get the limelight. But yeah, she had the idea to collaborate on a screenplay based on the true story of Pauline Parker and Juliet Hulm, who were two teenage girls in 1954 in Christchurch, New Zealand. They'd formed this <laughs> obsessive friendship, which spiralled out of control. And that's what the movie is based on. So, in 1954, Honora Parker, who was the mother of Pauline, she was killed by her daughter. She was 16 at the time, not the mother. The daughter was Gosh. 16, Pauline. 
Right. And Pauline's best friend, 15-year-old Juliet. Holm. Holm. Uh, on June 22nd, right. 1954. So just to wind back a bit, the girls had met a couple of years earlier at Christchurch Girls High School on the east coast of New Zealand, South Island. So anyone who's never been to New Zealand, it's two islands, North Island, South Island. Christchurch is South Island. Auckland is North Island. That gives you any okay. ideas. And look, Thanks for that, Michelle, because I've never been there. Haven't you? God, it's absolutely incredible. No. It is so, so, so beautiful. And people always say, oh, I prefer New Zealand to Australia. Well, I mean, yes, Ugh. all right. But it's one thing. Australia has everything. But anyway, we won't go there. Um, oh, my goodness. No, but I hear it all the time. People say, oh, you're from New Zealand. No, I'm from Australia. Oh, we love New Zealand. Good good for you. Goody, goody. Anyway. Did I ever tell you, sorry to interrupt for a moment, did I ever tell you that I made friends with a New Zealand man while I was travelling at the age of 19 through Kathmandu and Nepal and actually India. He came with us to India as well. This big, gorgeous, young Maori guy called Anthony Tamayaha and he's now an actor. Oh, He's this big, gorgeous, I think he was a gladiator in something and one of those, because you know they film all those things like Xena and... Yeah. Oh, I can't remember. I'll put it in the show notes. (laughs) We'll find out. My memory is, but he's lovely. And he wrote me a letter not long ago with all the notes and things. We used to write stories together. And he really? was in the room the day that the monkey, I was having a nap. He was playing guitar and a monkey came in and took things from this. He went, <laughs> and I'd, I opened my eyes and saw a monkey next to my face, hissing in my face, taking my toilet paper and an orange or something. <laughs> Little note from the side. Sorry, Michelle, to interrupt. Carry on. Well, New I, Zealand. Well, I only know really about North and South Island because I had a New Zealand boyfriend Paul. Well, there you shout go. Shout out to Paul no. Scott, who, shout out, who Paul. is a listener. He is an eavesdropper. So, Paul, he can probably tell us, why do why are we so unpopular with New Zealanders as Australians? Obviously, you weren't unpopular with Paul, luckily. But I once cleared a room of, <laughs> of, of New Zealanders for being Australian in a party. I just think that New Zealanders think we are the uncouth, older, embarrassing brother to, to the cool little kind of sister I don't I, do, I really don't know but well they might be right but you know what Paul was actually he he had his five minutes of fame in New Zealand he was in a very successful pop band Split ends. no but he knew all those guys he still knows them all and what about counting the beat two three four five six seven eight nine the paranoid. swingers oh probably he probably knew them all yeah so and we toured in New Zealand and have had a lovely time with our band but anyway moving back to this murder or we'll as they the said as they wrote these girls actually didn't call it murder they called it moida and you have moida? called it moida in the past. I call it moida. I know. I was so thinking. If you call it moida, does that make it less bad? Well, you will find out because it's a oh very gosh. strange story. So these two girls, Pauline and Juliet, were chalk and cheese. So Juliet, she was British born, absolutely stunning, very feminine, quite precocious. Pauline, she was plain, quite tomboyish. But somehow they formed a friendship and the pair, yeah, quickly became inseparable and actually quite obsessive with together. They were obsessed with each other, a little bit sexual and at Mm -hmm. the end murderous. But actually they had both bonded initially over medical conditions because 
as children, they had both been isolated from other kids at a young age because Pauline had suffered from osteomyelitis and a bone marrow infection and Juliet had tuberculosis. So I think they'd both had to rely on themselves a lot for mm. entertainment and they both had a very rich inner life they were imagination both, yeah both really right really wild imaginations so they were kind of like kindred spirits in that way yeah I think that's probably what brought them and they together. recognized that yeah yeah and they were both academically gifted both really highly intelligent so like I said the pair became inseparable really quickly and actually they created this fantasy world that only they could inhabit called Borovnia. And oh. they started, like in Borovnia, they had their own religion, they had their own moral code, they had their own version of heaven, they had in some ways it's their own language. And they called this also the fourth world. And when they were in this world, they called themselves heavenly creatures fascinating yeah and that's obviously thoroughly fascinating yeah and that's obviously where the title for the film came from heavenly creatures and was that explored in the film uh yes the whole fantasy world is what makes this so perfect for peter jackson Ah. because when they go into barovnia suddenly the world comes alive and you know back in 1994 when this film was made it was surreal and incredible and it would you know there was a lot of CGI and that's where you know Peter Jackson I had no idea it's incredible you've got to watch it it is I will watch it now it is one of these films that still stands the test of time it's amazing and Kate Winslet for her debut is remarkable I mean she is probably the most mischievous and like her face is so expressive you know she's always had an expressive face as an actress it's like next level and she is like the quintessential English rose so beautiful Melanie Linsky so when they cast the film they apparently went to every single high school in in New Zealand both islands looking for somebody that looked like Pauline somebody who was a little bit I don't mean this in a in a horrible way a little bit overweight um, a little bit plain, somebody very tomboyish, somebody with a face from the 1950s who could also act. Mm. And they found Melanie Linsky and she is extraordinary. Ah. She is extraordinary in this role. But for many years she was overshadowed because, you know, I mean, Kate Winslet, my God, one of the, the all-time beauties of, of our generation, you know. So I think she had a tough, but like we said, she'd actually had, she's had a fantastic career and most notably, she's in Yellow Jackets. Please watch it if you have it. I, mm-hmm. I feel like we should be getting money for, for Yellow Jackets because we talk about it so much. But <laughs> yeah, so it's absolutely incredible. And anybody who wants to go back and watch this. And yes, put a lens on on when you're watching it that it is from the 90s. You know, it's 1994. But uh, yeah. it's a brilliant film. And it actually won, I think, God, the Palm Door or Silver Lion or something. So yeah, it, okay. it did win accolades at the time. But getting back to the to the backstory, these two, Pauline and Juliet, they would spend hours together writing stories, books, plays, inventing fantasy lives. And look, both families eventually became really concerned that the girls were getting too close and spending too much time together. Then Juliet got sick. She got hospitalized for tuberculosis again. And actually 
both sets of parents were kind of relieved because they thought it's good for the girls to have some some time out. But as soon as Juliet right. was well again, the friendship continued with a vengeance. And, you know, they went right back to their Borovnian fantasy life. Pauline's parents were not happy about this because Pauline was sort of becoming more distant, a bit withdrawn. And they actually took her to see a psychiatrist who told them that he suspected that Pauline and Juliet were, you know, getting a bit sexy with each other. And that is that is in the film. In 1950s New Zealand, that was a big fucking no-no because homosexuality at that time was considered a mental illness. So these girls were sort of flagged as maybe having mental illness. And it was actually Mm -hmm. a criminal offence to be gay or homosexual in New Zealand until 1986. So... God almighty. Yeah, so this <laughs> this psychiatrist gave them a damning indictment and it and he didn't even say for sure he just said he suspected. So already the parents were in a heightened state of trying to separate yeah. these two girls. And you know I'm just horrified about it being a criminal offence until 1986. Well, we should find out when it was decriminalized in the UK and Australia because it Crazy. probably was yeah. similar. Cuz you know the whole world was quite yeah. yeah, it's just shocking, Backward, isn't it, when you yeah. think how far we've come. We've still got more. We've still got we a, more to a way go. to go. Yeah, I don't want to be too woke. Let's not be too woke about it anyway. Let's not do that. <laughs> so in 19, early in 1954, Juliet had discovered her mum in bed shagging the family lodger. And th- Ew. Yeah. And, but again, in 54, 1954, that would have been fucking controversial. But anyway, this... Sure. this kind of led to Juliet's parents separating, which was really bad for the girls because it was decided that Juliet would leave New Zealand with her father. And the father actually, I think, reading between lines, didn't really have a lot of time for Juliet. So he was going to just drop her off in South Africa to live with relatives. And this idea of the girls being separated was unthinkable to them. They were distraught they just couldn't bear the idea of being separated so Juliet and Pauline who were desperate to stay together they decided that Pauline had to move to South Africa too so they together thought this was an excellent plan and decided you know they were going to plan on on doing that but they thought Pauline's mother Honora she's going to get in the way was going to get in the way way oh I see yeah and they decided the only way for Pauline to get to South Africa was to get rid of of Honora and they didn't think that through because who's going to pay otherwise well (laughs) look they were 15 and 16 in well I say rural it was you know Christchurch was not cosmopolitan no way well they would, it was not cosmopolitan. It was very, very conservative. And look, the reason we know all of this information is because the girls were diary writers. You know, they wrote ah. stories. They wrote their diaries. They wrote everything down about their fantasy lives yeah. and this fantasy world, including, like I said, how they were both heavenly creatures and how the only way for them to be together was to kill Honora. So from April onwards... Pauline's diary was full of entries about killing her mother, how to make it look like an accident, or she died of natural causes. Obviously, that's ridiculous. But by mid-June, the girls had come up with a plan of how to kill Pauline's mum 
even up to the point where in the days leading up to the murder, the girls were putting on an act, um, pretending uh, to have come to terms with the fact that they were going to be separated soon when Juliet went off to South Africa. So, you know, they really had planned it through and even had planned the murder weapon in they I mean it was quite my god quite full on so on the 22nd of August the two girls arranged to take a walk with Nora in Victoria Park in Christchurch and when they were walking in a really remote part of the park Juliet dropped a pink stone and they thought, well, if we drop this stone, Honora is going to pick it up. And she did, predictably. Mm -hmm. She reached down to pick it up. And as she did that, Pauline reached for a hidden stocking with a brick inside it and smashed her mother over the head. Oh, no. Now, look, I just want to, yeah, trigger, trigger warning. Trigger warning. Warning. Trigger warning. Look out. Trigger. Oh my goodness! Warning. Jeeps. Brace yourself, Mavis. Sorry, I've triggered you too late, but um, too late, too late. <laughs> but look, for anyone who's seen the film, and and for how like beautiful and surreal and gorgeous this fantasy coming of age film is, with you know, like I said, English Rose, Kate Winslet, and you know, this this the film's actually more about their friendship, but anyway, than the murder. Yeah. But you know, anyone who's seen that. It's all this technicolor, beautiful fantasy world kind of thing. But in reality, these girls were fucking brutal little monsters because oh I read that it took 45 blows oh, from both shit. girls, not just Pauline, Juliet as well, oh to my kill Honora. 45. And for me, me, I just think that is fucked up because... Look, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think for many people, after the first smack to their head with a brick in a fucking stocking, they might stop and think, what the fuck am I doing? This is my mother. What am I doing? And maybe, maybe they might stop. But these two were so obsessed. And I think kind of maybe having out-of-body experiences or their minds were just somewhere else. And maybe they weren't really aware of what they were doing because... 45 blows. That is brutal. Out, Michelle. Absolutely brutal. So look, after they had killed Honora, and it wasn't quick, the girls fake went in search of help, saying Honora had fallen, she's hurt herself. And they went to a nearby cafe where they, the owner of the cafe knew Pauline and was like, oh, geez, all right. They knew Honora too. Went with the girls just expecting to see Honora with a broken leg or something, what they found was a bloodbath. And oh, the police geez. were p- quickly called. And when they arrived, they were like, what the fuck has gone on here? And mm. this is no accident. That ain't no fall. Nope. It yeah. ain't no accident, no fall. So they took the girls off and the, the girls caved really fast. And they had admitted right. they'd killed Honora. And the pair were charged with moida, as they'd uh-huh. written in their diaries. And look, during the trial, the girls testified that, yeah, they killed her. They did it because they considered themselves heavenly creatures. And because of their access to this fourth world, normal rules and laws didn't apply to them. And the normal moral codes of society did not apply to them. 
And shockingly, and this is reported over everything to do with this case, neither of the girls showed any remorse for what they'd done because they felt like they were justified. They were going to be separated and they were in their own world where what they were doing was completely acceptable. Okay. So Mm. because of this and also because of their ages, there was a lot of talk of, you know, insanity and temporary insanity. But it sort Mm -hmm. of didn't wash because of the diaries where you could see that this – it was plain to read, yeah, that it was yeah. planned. And that was a key thing in court. And eventually both Pauline and Juliet were sent down and convicted of murder. And interestingly, the judge said at the time of sentencing, the biggest punishment the girls could face was separation. So they were sent to different prisons. They were separated. Okay. And to all intents and purposes, that was the end of their friendship. Look, if they'd been over 18 they would have got the death penalty they would have been <gasps> killed sent down and oh sent God. to death row but because they were still considered minors what they got was prison and look Pauline was sent to Paparua prison in Christchurch and Juliet was sent to a jail in Auckland and then another one in Wellington and the thing is they were both model prisoners they were absolutely just smart well-behaved girls, and they only served five years. After five years, they were both let out. They were released in November 1959. And it (gasps) turns out Juliet's release was unconditional. And as soon as she was released, she fucked off out of New Zealand. Uh, Whereas Pauline, was she had um, conditions and she was required to mean living in New Zealand. But in 1965, she was allowed to leave and she emigrated to the UK. So Ooh. what what was really interesting about this is that after the girls were released, even though they had no restrictions put on them about contact, neither of them ever, ever communicated with each other again their whole lives okay. after prison. Yeah. So, and look, both of them changed their names. They got new identities. Obviously, like I said, they moved away from New Zealand and had new lives. This was until 1994 when Heavenly Creatures came out and right. it turns out Pauline is now somebody called Hilary Nathan living in England in a small village near Rochester. She's running a horse riding Ooh. school. Never married. Wow, Michelle. Never had any kids. Juliet Holm, it turns out, emigrated to Scotland. And she has this big fucking successful, famous career as a writer of crime fiction. Oh, my God. Yep. Massively successful. And Perry. I thought it was that lady that's always on Radio 4, the Scottish lady that's always on Radio 4. Well, I mean, she won't have a Scottish accent, but no, I mean. No, she doesn't either. (gasps) This lady doesn't. I wonder if it is. Oh, no, she does. Oh, does she? All right. Wait. Well, let's let's do some She's famous. Val. Her name's Val. Val McDermott. She's an amazing crime writer and she does a lot of plays for Radio 4. No, well, this is. Well, Juliet's new name is Anne Perry. She, too, never married, never had children. Juliet, a.k.a. Anne Perry, has in later life discussed the crime. But she says she denies that she and Pauline ever had a lesbian relationship. But she has said 
in the mid interviews from the mid 90s and this is the first time anyone's heard this that psychotropic drugs may have played a part in her action because she said in an interview with Cincinnati magazine that when she was being treated for tuberculosis in Christchurch doctors gave her experimental mood altering drugs two lots of these are oh. her words two lots of drugs one by mouth one by injection and injected oh with a long needle in, in her ass every third morning. And they'd Gosh. do it when she was still asleep. Now, look, whether oh these God. claims are true or, or significant, we don't know. But she's sort of hinting that maybe, you know, LSD or whatever it was they injected her with oh had affected God. her brain. But um, Wow. And that she says she was a reluctant participant. So, you know, and she's been painting um, Pauline as sort of the aggressor over the years. But right. who knows? Who knows? That's fascinating. That is the real story of heavenly creatures. Thank you so much. It really, it's terrifying because this crime shook New Zealand. There'd never been anything like it in New Zealand. So yeah. heavenly creatures. That's incredible. We got a bit bleak. We got a bit dumb. We're two birds yakking. Just having a laugh. Speaking of things that we've watched on TV and crime dramas and things, one of the last times that you came to visit before the pandemic, we sat down to watch something. It was called Giri Haji, which means. Uh, I can't remember in Japanese. And <laughs> sorry, sorry, people, <laughs> like we don't remember. Something redemption and something else. And it starred Kelly McDonald oh, and yes. Will Sharp. We never finished and it. And Will Sharp, I did. And it was amazing because at the end, it was just a your regular kind of, you know, mini series mm -hmm. England, Japan together, Yakuza. Kelly McDonald being a policewoman, she kind of falls in love with this guy who's the main protagonist, who's Japanese, who's on the run to try and save his brother from the Yakuza, blah, blah, blah. But the real standout for that in that program for me was Will Sharp, who's a mixed heritage Japanese-English actor, writer and director. Mm -hmm. And he played this sex worker called Rodney in that TV show, right? Okay. The end of that show was really bizarre because suddenly it goes black and white and all the characters are dancing in an interpretive dance sequence, which seems so out of nowhere and weird. But at the same time, you're just like, wow, that's changed everything. Okay. It was really special. I'd, I would recommend you watch it. Giri Haji, it's called. Okay. But I'm only mentioning that because I just watched a Sky HBO production called The Landscapers, starring David Thewlis known for all sorts of things, uh, mainly Harry Potter, but I've seen him in heaps of things. And Olivia Colman, who everybody knows is the Queen and other things and Broadchurch and all of that. She's everything. Night Porter, everything. Oh, she, Olivia, and she was always working. She was wonderful in Fleabag as well. And Fleabag. She was in Fleabag too. Now, yeah. can, I just, can I just say, I watched the first episode of Landscapers and... Yeah. Just thought, not for me, thought it was a bit shit. I, it's so obvious and I didn't enjoy it. So maybe you're going to okay. turn turn it around for me. Maybe. I don't think so, though. Who knows? What I will do is blow it for anyone who wants to watch it because <laughs> I'll show you exactly what happened. Spoiler! So it had, for me, it had a similar quality. And you know why? It was directed by Will Sharp, who played Rodney in oh. Mixed Race okay. English Japanese. Connections guy from yeah and he's a great actor I enjoy watching him 
but he directed The Landscapers. Mm-hmm. And when I was watching it, I wasn't aware that it was based on a true crime that actually happened. Okay. Were you aware of that? Yes, I was, but it still didn't grab me. Similar to what you've just told us about the heavenly creatures, it's about a couple who made, who found each other in later life and it's shown through the TV show that there's a lot of rich fantasy going on, particularly for Olivia Colman's character, Susan, who she kind of, she's obsessed with 50s Hollywood westerns and Gary Cooper. Oh, and right. there's a lot of dream sequence, if you like, of her and her husband in heroic roles. And I was always wondering what was going on there. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's about Christopher and Susan Edwards. David Theodos plays Christopher, her husband. And it was written by Olivia Colman's husband, Ed Sinclair. And as I said, directed by Will Sharp. So it uses those same cinematic devices as Giri Haji, where it kind of flips around and gets kind of cinematic. She's got a huge fantasy world. She's into Westerns and movies. And Chris, when they met on a dating website, not website, because it wasn't, it was back in the 80s. Oh, okay. (laughs) It wasn't that. On one of those dating uh, services. Services. When they had their first date, they discovered she discovered that he was a fan of Gérard Depardieu. So, like I said, there's lots of you know, throwbacks of them in the Wild West and they often break the fourth wall. There's some amazing devices that they use in the TV show. And if you can't get through that first episode, fair enough. But if you can stick with it like I did, because it was a bit slow, then you are rewarded at, at, at times. I couldn't stop watching it. It wasn't like running to the TV to watch it, mm-hmm. but definitely enjoyed it. So, like I said, it's a it's based on a true crime that happened in 1998 in the Nottinghamshire town of Mansfield. But where we start the TV show, it's 2013. Chris and Susan are living in a shabby one-bedroom apartment in France. It's not Paris. He's come back from a, yet another job interview that he didn't get due to his poor French. And you're wondering why they're living there. They haven't paid their rent in months. It's clear they're down to their last brass razoo. And despite earlier in the, you would have seen this part, Susan's speaking fluent French at an antique dealer's shop and she's buying a great big poster of Gary Cooper that had been sold for way over the odds. And she pulls out one of many credit cards and pays for it. When Chris comes home, he's upset because he didn't get the job and they're eating canned baked beans or a baked potato or whatever and so she says oh another letter from Gerard has come and hands him this letter which is you know talking to Chris like he's a friend and there's a 100 euro note in there and uh, it turns out that they've become pen friends and all of this but anyway <laughs> downtrodden Chris goes to a phone box and calls his stepmother to ask for financial help and this is where everything changes for them because he then divulges a secret that they'd kept for years and asks her to keep it secret but she can't because suddenly you're in a Nottingham police station and they get this call that Susan's parents, William and Patricia Witcherly, they were elderly, had presumed to be living abroad, but actually they were buried in the garden in that house in Mansfield. So police go and search the address, which is now owned by a new family, and the bodies are discovered and they launch their investigation. They find the Edwards pair, Susan and Chris, in France, And they email them back and forth and eventually they agree to come back to be questioned about this. And they're picked up at St Pancras. But you're wondering, they're so sweet and well-mannered. How could this lovely pair of misfits have done such a horrible crime? Mm -hmm. Well, through flashbacks, we learned that Susan and Chris got together in their 40s through, like I said before, a dating service. (laughs) And she missed her last bus home. So Chris invited her to stay and 
he took the sofa. Her, his mother was there at the time. The next day he walked her home and she was still living with her parents. Mm-hmm. So he walked her home and said goodbye, whatever. But he kind of lingered and he noticed that the parents weren't letting her in. They were punishing her for not coming home the night before. So he just he, he flew in and rescued her. And eventually they got together. And at the end of each episode also, you see bits of news Okay. You would have seen that if you'd watched the whole episode. No, I didn't watch the whole... That's what intrigued me. Okay. Because I had no idea this is a true story. I hadn't heard about it. And it only really came out, like I said, 2013 was when it all was investigated. But it's a it's an old crime. So they're separated and questioned, sep- obviously separately. And they're telling identical stories because they've had enough time, Michelle, to work on yeah. their matching stories yeah the story they gave for the demise of susan's parents is this susan was visiting her parents on her own one weekend when she heard a gunshot she entered the parents room to find her drunken mother standing over her dead father and then she threw the gun on the bed and susan picked it up to disarm her mother but then the two got into an argument where some stuff came out and the mother patricia provoked susan who was still holding the gun by admitting that she knew all along that the father, William, had been sexually abusing Susan since she was a child oh. and blamed the daughter for ruining her life and her marriage and told her she was unlovable and that, you know, she knew, but she didn't do anything about it because she was taking the heat from the husband because he was a miserable, he was much older than Patricia as well. Right. And she didn't have to deal with him anymore. So that was... That's a fucking horrible alibi. Jesus. I know. Horrific. So Susan then shot her mother she wrapped the bodies up in a duvet and then went, travelled home to Dagenham okay. to Chris, okay. where she spent the week. And the following weekend, she convinced him to come back to the house where they ate fish and chips, watched Eurovision, <laughs> and then she confessed what she'd done. <laughs> Her parents were dead upstairs. So they, he then sprung into action, saved his wife. by They both carried the bodies downstairs, buried them in the night, and that was that. Well, that was both their stories, but the police smelled a rat they said that is bullshit so they kept pressing on until it was apparent that there were discrepancies in both stories for starters susan went to the bank that day after the killing and opened a joint account for her and her mother oh and the second big glaring problem was that chris and her are sitting there eating fish and chips when there's been dead bodies up there wrapped in a duvet for over a week they're gonna sting of course they are Oh dear! How could you? How could you eat your fish and chips? Well, they didn't think it through. They didn't think it through. Anyway, the the witches had been shot in the chest twice, and police doubted that either Patricia or Susan could have managed this. It was a bit too well done. Right. It later transpired that Chris had been a member of a gun club, and that's where all those fantasies come into play. Him, him like shooting, you know, right. people. And, being the hero. So the police felt very strongly that Susan and Chris had premeditated this crime and killed the parents for their money. It turns out, and it's shown in the TV show, that Susan felt that her parents had stolen an inheritance that was left to her by her grandmother because the parents treated her dreadfully. They were awful to her all through her life. Mm. It's shown in the program that they came around one weekend to have dinner with uh, Chris and Susan. And they kind of gave Susan the, like, leaned on her a bit and said, we need that money. Patricia said to her, that's my mother's money and it should be mine. Please, can you give it back? And I tell you what, I won't do anything with it. You can have it when we're gone kind of thing. She kind of managed to get Susan to relent and she did hand over this this money. But immediately, William and Patricia sold their house in London and moved straight to Mansfield. 
and made a tidy profit as well. So that was that. It was like, fuck you, Susan. See you later. Wow. Shit. They did her over. So that's probably where the idea started for them to kill the parents. But anyway, after the murders, Susan and Chris told their families and friends her parents were on holiday or visiting people or in Ireland. She would continue to cash their benefits and their pensions. Oh. And she would continue to ca- cancel appointments on their behalf and whatnot. And she'd send cards and letters. She was a very good... Forgery. She was a forger. Forgery. She was a great forger. She would send cards and letters to family and friends from the Witchleys, so no suspicions were ever raised. It was years, Michelle. God. After a letter. I wonder if they could have got away with it if he hadn't have confessed. They could have. Oh. Well, they were on their last legs, really. Right. But after a letter, they were still living in Dagenham, and after a letter came for William Witchley in the run-up to his 100th birthday, <laughs> where a visit from the officials who were going to... A, allow the queen to send this you know the queen sends a telegram for your 100th birthday yeah. people were going to come around they wanted to meet him <laughs> oh, shit. they realized <gasps> it wasn't going to work so susan forged her parents signatures to sell the mansfield house and the pair fled the country to france living on the proceeds of the sale right and this is where it all started to fall apart because the money began to run out susan couldn't stop buying incredibly expensive collectibles from these the movies in the the wild west this must be where she went in her rich fantasy life yeah. in order to make her abuse and her miserable life more manageable yeah poor thing i mean that's quite quite a tragic story so far. heartbreaking and of course olivia coleman is the best person to portray that <laughs> as for chris the police knew he was the shooter he's he blurted out that his wife was terrified of guns. So oh, they, that's gosh. when they kind of got in, oh, they realised. And then they, they discovered through deep diving that Chris had um, a saviour complex where he wanted to take care of his alcoholic mother and his brother. Both had passed away after he got married. Yeah. His brother died quite young. Mm. And these deaths upset Chris to the point that he would mourn for days. And that is when the Der- Gerard Depardieu thing started. So to try and cheer him up, Susan went off and sent her, managed to, she bought a franking machine. She oh sent these God. letters from France. Yeah, yeah. Pretending to be Gerard Depardieu to cheer Chris up. And what I don't know and can't be sure of is, did Chris ever know oh, that she was forging? Have. He must have. He would have done by the end. Chris always called his wife fragile. Right. In these scenes, it kind of illustrates that Chris is the kind of fragile one. Yeah. When he's mourning for his parent, his mum and his brother. Anyway. By the end of the TV show, they've been arrested, they're taken separately, but they are tried together. You know, when there's all this stuff about her being fragile is, t- is told to Susan, she eventually just yells out, I'm not fragile, right. I'm broken. Oh. But she says she can't be hurt anymore because she's all, the worst has already been done to her. <gasps> so what happened? Do they get convicted? Go to jail? They did, oh. unfortunately. Well, unfortunately, they, they committed premeditated double murder. So, yeah, yeah they did. Yeah, okay. They they had stolen 285-plus thousand from the Witchleys, but despite that, they were always broke because hmm. they spent about 15 grand on collectibles and were £160,000 in debt at the time of their <gasps> arrest. So in June 2014, the pair went to trial and they were both convicted of double murder with 25 years each. Shit. Susan appealed in 2015, but lost. Her lawyers insisted the minimum term was too long for her and the fact that she was allegedly abused by her father had not been taken fully into account. And her legal representatives also said that she's unlikely to receive any visitors during this time inside because the only person she really had in her life was Chris. And he was sent to a different prison. So like your two heavenly creatures, Mm, separation was the worst punishment. 
Sad. Chris also lost his own appeal and the couple remain locked away at the time of recording today, Michelle, sadly for them. But obviously they've done the crime. They had to do the time, innit? Innit. My God, that's just so sad because you just feel like they're just two loners who, I mean, they were still living with their parents when they met. But she, well, actually, yeah, they both were. Yeah. yeah. And just... And they're in their 40s. They're in their 40s. You know, life hadn't given them a good hand. They found each other. Okay, no. yes, they murdered some people. But uh, if they hadn't done that, it would have been quite a nice life for them, I suppose. Yeah. I don't know. I suppose that Chris was working. But it was in the end, I found it a really wonderful thing to watch. It was different. It was slow. It's not like your Yellow Jackets or your Toast of London's. No. But I enjoyed so it. So I should give it a I go. It. I should go back. No, you don't need to know. You know what happens. Yeah, I do know what happens now. Thanks. <laughs> and probably like quicker and more exciting. Although I do I do like Olivia Coleman, but yeah. She's great. She is great. Oh, well, fantastic. What a great story. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for telling me all about the, the uh, Heavenly Creatures. I will now watch that film. It's a goodie. It's a goodie. And obviously, you know, Peter Jackson went on to do great things. Most recently, he did yes. the Beatles documentary, which I haven't watched yet i'm watching it are you is it good i'm watching it right now yes yeah it's great it's slow that's a slow burn yeah but it, I, I guess it depends if you're a beatles fan or not and i am i'm a beatles fan absolutely do you know who i'm absolutely loving in it who? ringo yeah but i always loved ringo i always loved that he's great he was wonderful he's just he's just so i listen happy. for your footsteps <laughs> i know he was it's a great it's great to watch them moving and talking and being and yeah. and seeing the dynamic between the four of them. Yeah. It's fascinating. And if you are a musician or were a musician which you were and I was, it will remind you of sitting around in a in a studio trying to come up with songs. Yeah. That's fantastic watching them write those songs in a hurry. Oh god, and you know end up being classics. I mean, one of my all-time favorite things is to watch music documentaries I'm fascinated by the creative process and how people yeah. create something out of nothing you know it's you know but sometimes the songs just write themselves don't they Geordie <laughs> they do as you any listener to of this podcast will know but listen Misha I think it's it's time for us to wrap it up it is but you know what what does that leave us with nothing more to say apart from whatever you do wherever you are wherever you go <laughs> just, just keep, keep Eavesdropping. Eavesdropping. Eavesdropping.